0: There are several of them, a couple in Israel, I understand there's one in Tennessee, one in Arkansas, one in Pennsylvania, and maybe you've had a chance to walk through and just get a feel for what the people experienced in the Old Testament before the temple was built when they went around, you know, with this tent, movable sanctuary, kind of a, and if you haven't, there are a couple of virtual ones now online where you can actually <laughs> go with your mouse and tour around through the sanctuary and see how it looks uh, and get, a, get an experience of the tabernacle. There's nothing like that kind of 3D experience <clears throat> to, uh, to give you a feel for it. What was that all about? Why did the people have a tabernacle? Well, the obvious answer is that this was where they met with God, right? God was there in a very kind of physical presence. God is everywhere, of course, but he made himself manifested in that tent in a very physical sort of way. So as the Old Testament sinner, the person guilty, they know they've broken God's law, and they're approaching the tabernacle, what did they come to first? They came to um, the altar of sacrifice, where they would bring that animal that would be burned up on their behalf for forgiveness of sins, not eternal forgiveness like we think of now in the blood of Christ, but it was a temporary thing, wasn't it, to turn away God's wrath and judgment from their sin, a temporary removal. Beyond that tabernacle, there was the holy place, and that was the place for the priests. You weren't allowed to go in there as an ordinary person. And the priests would go and, of course, they would lay out the showbread and and perform the service to God that was there. Once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where there was the Ark of the Covenant holding the Ten Commandments and the cherubim statues on top of that Ark representing the very presence of God. And it was where actually in that place where the glory of God was, again, manifested in a special way. So the tabernacle was all about how sinful people can come in touch with and approach and, and if you will, have a relationship with a holy God. Sinful people coming together with a holy God. Even the priests were sinful. They had to scrub their bodies and put on very clean white robes. Again, that can't take away sin, but it was symbolism for the need for cleansing from sin. So if you've spent any time in the book of Hebrews, you know that the, one of the main messages of Hebrews is that this the sanctuary and the priesthood were symbols. They were symbolic. They were representative of something more heavenly and more real. Christ came to fulfill those symbolic realities, and he is both the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. He now offers forgiveness of sins and promises eternal life to everyone who places their trust in him. So as instructive as the tabernacle was, the message of our um, confessional reading this morning relates to the fact that it was just a copy. It was a mere copy of realities that are spiritual, heavenly realities. And eventually that tabernacle was replaced by a more permanent Structure a temple, as it was as it was called, a permanent building that had the same basic function as the tabernacle. Sacrifices were offered there for sin, and the priesthood priesthood was there, and they did their ministry there. But even that temple was not intended to be permanent. It was going to eventually be destroyed, and you know we, it was destroyed initially in the. Exile and rebuilt and destroyed once again by the Romans in 70 AD. And I know there are religious leaders in Israel today who would love to rebuild it, love to see it rebuilt, but that can't happen as long as there's a Muslim mosque standing right on that site where the original temple was. When will that conflict be resolved? We don't know. <clears throat> what if it was rebuilt? Would that be the place where we would go to worship then? Would, God be setting up His presence in the temple once again? Well, no. Not if you if you read the book of Hebrews, it's clear that has been abolished. I'm reading from chapter nine now of Hebrews, verse twenty-two. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies, the tabernacle or the temple the copies of heavenly things, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are mere copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ's ministry is so much better. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. So much better than the copies of the Old Testament because they have been fulfilled in him and his ministry is permanent. It's ever living, ever going on because he ever lives to make intercession for us. So the whole point of the, the confessional reading is an important one for us. We're not to go back to a ceremonial experience of Christianity. We are to have a real experience face to face, a direct Experience with Christ Himself. Now, I know in the history of the church, grand cathedrals, glorious temples, lots of rites, incense, holy water, all that stuff. Participants are encouraged to eat wafers in some branches of the church that are considered to actually have magically turned into the body of Christ and to drink wine that has been magically transformed into the blood of Christ. See, that's going back to shadows. As we consider it, we in the Protestant movement, we don't want to go back under symbols and shadows that are no more than that. In fact, many of the Reformation churches at first were very plain, not, not much more, not even less elaborate than this, than this room is because we're not into <clears throat> worshiping images, pictures, smells, bells, all that stuff. It raises the question, then, where do we find the real tabernacle? Where is the real tabernacle? I'm interested in the fact that in the book of Hebrews, the writer will spend some time on some aspect of the Old Testament that has been fulfilled in Christ. So he'll talk about the Old Testament reality. Then he'll talk about Christ's fulfillment. and Then what does he do after that? Then he'll spend some time saying, so what? <laughs> what do we do about that? How should we live on the basis of that? So periodically through the book of Hebrews, you have these practical sections stuck in in the middle of that because the writer doesn't want us to get the idea that these are all kind of theoretical things, that these things have a deep impact on us. So Jesus Christ himself is the true tabernacle. That's that's one of the lessons that comes out of all this tabernacle finds its primary fulfillment in christ he is emmanuel god with us if the tabernacle was a place where people met with god through a very uh, mediated situation jesus christ has come and he's the one through whom we meet with god we connect with god Um, John begins his gospel by saying, Jesus tabernacled among us. And I think he uses that language very intentionally to show how Jesus fulfills the tabernacle. If the tabernacle offered animal sacrifices, Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice. Tabernacle offered daily cleansing for the priests and for others. Jesus cleanses us by the filling of his spirit and the word of God. The tabernacle was a model of living in relationship with God. His light, his life, his worship. That Even that holy bread represented a daily feeding upon the Lord. And Jesus brought all those things to fulfillment when he brought us into God's family. The tabernacle represented the very presence of God in the most holy place. Jesus was God himself. That's why when Christ died the gospel record that the, that the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two, completely torn in half, showing that the entrance, the way into the Holy of Holies is now made available to all of us through faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so the tabernacle is Christ first of all, but describing the tabernacle simply in terms of Christ's fulfillment, misses a step toward more of an ultimate reality. Jesus came not just to fulfill those symbols, but to create something that in itself would represent what the tabernacle represented at one time in the world. And that's his church. That's his people. That's the family of Christ that gather together like we're doing today to represent him, to hear his word, and then to go out and represent him in the world. So that uh, third step is what I want to spend a little more time on uh, this morning. Kind of the grand crescendo of the book of Hebrews happens in, in the 13th chapter that we read from. And I want to talk about how it it speaks of new attitudes, because as the writer of Hebrews has shown that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of the symbols of the law, he's fulfilled them so that he might create in us, even describe it as a living temple, we're living stones in the new temple that God is building. First of all, then there's a new attitude toward other people in the first four uh, verses. He starts out really setting the theme when he says in verse 1 of Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. The Greek word, as you probably have heard many times, is Philadelphia. That city back east is named after this concept of brotherly love. Not sure they always fulfill that, but nonetheless, that was the vision. We're a committee glued together by brotherly love. The writer uses that term on purpose because he's talking about family love. And there's a sense in which our connection in Christ, I think a very real sense, in which our connection in Christ is is a family connection, that we are family with one another. Christian community ought to be the same way. That's why he says, let it continue. Let it go on. Don't let it grow cold. It it grows cold by neglect. It grows cold when we don't fuel that fire every day and and let the Lord fuel that fire by his spirit. Imagine if you were an Old Testament believer and you showed up to the the tabernacle to offer your sacrifice. You're feeling guilty. You want this sacrifice to represent forgiveness from the Lord. But you come to the tabernacle and the priests are so busy arguing with uh, with each other that they forget to to offer your sacrifice. How would you feel? It's the same thing when uh, people approach the community of Christ and they find disharmony and disagreement. Jesus boiled the commandments down to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, so there's that one side. We talk about one table of the law of how we relate to God. But then there's the other side and how we relate to and treat other people. And th- those, uh, th- those kinds of commands are covered in a very tangible way in the next three verses. Verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And then verse 4, marriage is honorable above all, among all, and the bed undefiled. Now, what ties all those three very practical admonitions together is the way verse 1 started. Let brotherly love continue. These are all examples, and he could have given a hundred others. Uh, examples of how brotherly love continues but let's take the three that he's given and I think these become models for the rest of our life Uh, first of all we we show brotherly love by entertaining strangers in other words people not necessarily unknown to us totally but people who need hospitality they need care we take them into our homes we feed them we provide them meals now, in the ancient uh, ancient world, some of those strangers were actually Christian missionaries, trained evangelists, going out to shed uh, to share the gospel. And very early in the church's history, toward the end of the first century, parts of the church began to pull inward, fearful of the Roman Empire, fearful of uh, being, you know, either canceled or 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 reported to the Roman government and jailed and all the things that would go with that. Third John, for example, a little tiny letter in Third John. Maybe you haven't even read it recently. John's writing to his friend Gaius in that area because Diotrephes, who seems to be from the language the pastor of the church won't receive John's missionaries, people coming out from John's church To spread the gospel elsewhere so already at the end of the first century there's this major division happening of course it's only gotten worse from there the church is horribly divided and one of the ways we come together is by sharing brotherly love and taking in strangers how's your hospitality you know it's one of the greatest tools of evangelism there is and uh there are other ways of doing it. You can invite people out to lunch if you're not a hospitality kind of person. But there are ways that you can reach out to people and try to not only cement the unity of the body of Christ, you ought to be sharing with each other within the congregation, but also inviting other people to come and share with you and to see the life of Christ living out in you. Secondly, he says, "Let Brotherly love is expressed when we join Common cause with those who are being mistreated. That was verse 3, right? Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. That's a pretty graphic description, isn't it? Try to put yourself in the place where you feel those monocles, you feel those chains, you feel the cold metal, you feel the cold of the room, you feel the hardness of the walls you're trying to imagine, we can't, you know, we can't be with there with them, but we can imagine the pain that they're feeling, and we can develop in ourselves a, gra- a more graphic sense of that. Now, that's kind of a, that's kind of an unpleasant thing, isn't it? And yet, if you want to really understand what letting brotherly love continue means, you have to understand it in terms of some of the most mistreated brethren and sisters that are in the world. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. See what he's saying? You're not in the prison cell. You don't have the lashes on your back from being punished for Christ, but you're in a body, and you know what it means to experience pain and to experience some degree of suffering. Use that, he's saying, as you... Uh, imagine what they're going through so that you can pray for them more effectively and care for them better so that's that's the second example and the third example it seems seems totally different in some ways marriage is honorable in all verse four and it actually can be read as a command and some translations do have it as a command because you've got a series of commands in this context and, and it would read, "Let marriage be honorable in all or among all. Marriage is to be god honoring in other words, and the bed he could get very very specific and graphic is to be undefiled with fornication and adultery. It's a command it's it's um, it's not just stating the value of marriage but that we reflect that value. In our own marriage, all of our ministry to other people is worthless, husbands and wives particularly, if we're not ministering to each other. See, that's the primary and first place where let brotherly love continue has to express itself. It comes out of caring Christian families and marriages. He could have gone on to talk about the family because the marriage is the start and the center of that. Uh, And look at our, look at our culture. Half of marriages, if not more, nowadays don't make it. And uh, surprisingly and sadly, that's just as true in the church as it is outside of the church. And that's a travesty. That's, that's a counter witness to the world. So the writer to Hebrews is saying, if you're going to be God's sanctuary among in the world the place where people can come and meet God reflect him and honor him even in the most basic relationships that exist in the world marriage being the number one some studies have been done on what kind of households so I've thought a lot about this you know I want to avoid on the one hand the uh at least when I was raising my kids, now my grandkids live with us, so it's kind of the same. But I want to, on the one hand, avoid being this super strict parent that the kids just can't stand being around because it's such a burden. They're always going to find themselves unable to please me or whatever. And on the other side, of course, there's that over-tolerant parent who just kind of lets them get away with murder. And... uh and doesn't really ever give good guidance as to how they should grow up and live and there's that balance every parent tries to make you know uh, between um, you know super strict and super permissive but actually some studies have been done that indicate that whether whether a household tends more to the strict and more, or more to the permissive, and I'm not talking about extremes here. I'm just talking about tendencies. That if there's true and genuine love in that house, the kids grow up healthy, you know. So maybe I don't have to wrestle with my decision so much, and I need to focus more on am I being a loving leader of my household to my kids and now to my grandkids. Genuine love starts in the home and it flows out from there, and that's why. The writer to Hebrews is so concerned that our homes, starting with the marriage in verse 4, be be honorable and undefiled. We are God's tabernacle. But he goes on to talk about things, too. We have to not only have a new attitude toward other people as God's tabernacle people, but toward things. And he talks about it in verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. You know what covetousness is, right? I mean, it's simply the Tenth Commandment, right? Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's animals, whatever. Nothing, anything that is your neighbor's. Covetousness, though, is a a deep illness of our heart that gives rise to all of that. If I can just get that thing... If I can just have a relationship with that person, if I could just have this situation in my life rather than that, everything would be wonderful. And so we burn with that longing for our life to be different somehow. What we ought to say instead in verse 6 is, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God will give me everything I need. He will provide for all my needs. And so I don't have to spend my time burning with this covenous longing. So that's a a new attitude toward toward things. That's part of being God's tabernacle in the world. He wants us to have a new attitude toward our stuff. We're to hold it lightly, meaning if it goes away, we're not going to die, right? We're going to survive it if it goes Then I think there's, in this passage, just broadly speaking, a new attitude toward ministry also, starting in verse 7. Remember those who rule over you. He's not talking about your governor or your king or whoever, because he goes on to describe who he's talking about, who have spoken the word of God to you. He's talking about church leaders, ministry leaders, people who are spiritual authorities over you in Christ. And part of that is, in verse eight, um, Jesus Christ is the same. So verse nine, don't be carried around with all carried about with all kinds of doctrinal teaching. Uh, follow the word, and stick with it, and uh, and and submit as he says. Remember those who have the rule over you and have spoken the word of God to you that's a that's a mandate i think that uh, makes a huge huge important difference in how people approach the church how vi- how they view the church um it comes down to how how we treat our spiritual leaders moses and aaron for example in the old testament were imperfect in many ways and you can read the narrative in exodus and Deuteronomy, and, and, and you can see that at every point. And yet, God took their leadership very, very seriously and severely punished those who would resist and, and uh, overthrow it. Why? Because they were great? No. But because they were the representatives of God's word. And God's word is to be honored above all. <clears throat> James says, don't many of you become teachers because we're going to receive a greater judgment because we all offend in many of the things we say. So rather than jumping to be a leader, we need to support and pray for our leaders that they wouldn't offend, that they would be following God's guidance in their teaching. Galatians six, 6 says, let him who has taught the word share in all good things, with him who teaches Paul teaching as Jesus did that the laborer is worthy of his hire and so we support those leaders as well and we follow them in their spiritual direction as as it follows the word of God so these these uh, attitudes toward other people attitudes toward the things that we possess attitudes toward those who lead us are transformed attitudes that make the church today have the same function or a better, way better function than the tabernacle did in the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment. Christ fulfilling the, the, the tabernacle and the Old Testament ceremonies didn't just do that by dying. He did that by creating a church that will go on and reflect the true character of the law, loving God with all our hearts, loving each other intensely and showing that love in very caring and practical ways. And that's what I think uh, he wants to encourage us to, to remember today as we think about this section from the from the Belgic Confession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example of Jesus that we looked at earlier. And we thank you, Lord, for this grand teaching in Hebrews that culminates, Lord, in the Christian community being the place where we come together to reflect the reality and the love of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, Lord. We struggle with it all every day in our own individual ways, and we need so much of your grace and mercy to be able to fulfill those high callings that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to Uh, more than anything, to to care for each other in very tangible ways. Even even those who are far away from us suffering in Ukraine, even those who are far away perhaps persecuted and in a jail cell somewhere, to remember those, Lord, as if we ourselves were right there with them in their cell. Uh, Father, help us to have the imagination and the heart and the concern to do that and to to care for those who are, who are being persecuted. But Lord, most of all, help our families to reflect that love and to uh, reflect the balance and the adjust, well-adjustedness uh, of people who know why you've created us and know how we ought to relate to one another. And Father, help us to uh, care less, you know, especially in our culture where we have so many things, to care less for those things and to care more for the people that are around us than we do about the the things and objects and the status symbols or whatever they be that we have. And then, Lord, help us to care for our leaders and to pray for them and to pray that you would use them powerfully and mightily in the service of your gospel. And so, Lord, we're thankful for, for Pastor Harms. We pray that you would be with him, strengthen him through his journey. And rest time this week, and we pray that you'd bring him back strong and that he would be an anointed uh, representative of your word. And the elders who support him and work with him, Father, that they would be uh, strengthened and anointed by you as well. And we're so grateful, Lord, for the ministry of the church that you've given us. Lord, it's not um, anything that we deserve, but it certainly is something that uh, you have purchased. Uh, in your Son, Jesus Christ, with his own blood. And we're so grateful for that, Lord, that we can be, as sinful people, we can be representatives of Jesus Christ because of your grace and forgiveness. And help us to do that better, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We can't become the people or the church that you want us to be on our own. We need your Spirit outpoured in fullness and greatness upon us. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.